Thank you, Robert. I appreciate that. I, I missed being with you guys last Sunday. I was out of town. Our, our oldest son, Justin, lives in the Dallas area, and he invited me to go up and, and do some ministry side by side with him. And it's so rare I get to do that, I, I couldn't say no. So I was up there with Justin last Sunday. If you were here last Sunday, Kevin Pate taught and did a fantastic job. If you missed it, you need to listen to that talk, that message. Great talk then. When we were in Dallas, uh, Justin introduced me to two of his friends, Nick and Fatima. And in fact, we had dinner together with them. And they were a couple in their late 20s. And, and I fell in love with them instantly. Uh, just a, a great, great, cool couple. They, um, they believe there's a God. There's been enough evidence and activity in their lives. They're convinced there's a God. But they don't yet know who he is. And so we had some great conversation, and there was much conversation about Jesus. In fact, uh, it went on way into the evening. At one point, the restaurant lights went off, and we took that as the clue is that everyone's gone, and indeed they were except us, and so that kind of ended the night. But in one sense, the message I have today is for Nick and Fatima, but in another sense, it's very much for some of you in the room today, because some of you are where Nick and Fatima are you are convinced there's a God, there's been enough activity in your life that you believe there's a God, but you don't know who he is yet. And so this message is very much for you as well as for them. And then many of you in this room, you are convinced that Jesus is the risen son of God, um, but you have friends or family or acquaintances or co-workers or classmates that, that are uncertain of that. And so this message is also for you because I hope it can be this this inspiration, this content, this resource that might be of value to you as well. So to put it in context, we're in this series. We've been asking the question, where is God today? There are two key truths we've focused on. Colossians 1.15 says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God looks like, just look at Jesus. Look at his life. Look at what he did and said, and, and we'll see God the Father because they're they, they are identical in their words and actions and heartbeat. And then the second truth is Hebrews 13.8 that says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's consistent. He never changes. And so because of that, we've been looking back at what Scripture says in the Gospel of John about where Jesus was 2,000 years ago and what Jesus did 2,000 years ago and then drawing to today because he never changes. We're finding he's doing the very same things today he was doing 2,000 years ago. So we're in John 18 today, and I could read you sections of it, but I'm going to summarize it for you. The bulk of the chapter, Jesus is on trial. It's, it's uh, Thursday night has unfolded, and he's been arrested. He's, been, he's taken first to the, um, the former high priest of Judaism, and this former high priest, is, before the trial begins, is convinced that Jesus is guilty and should be killed. So there's this trial there, and then that ends, and Jesus is taken then to the current high priest of Judaism. And that high priest is also convinced Jesus is guilty. He deserves death. And then it transfers from there to the governor of Rome, whose name is Pilate. And, and Pilate, doesn't, he's not convinced of anything other than he just wants peace. He's not looking for truth or justice, just peace. And so, so this is all unfolding in chapter 18. It spills into 19. And, and I'm reading that from this position that I live in now of faith in Jesus. And I'm looking at this as so distorted, so warped. Here is, there are these very flawed, very wrecked people, and they're judging God. There are these very sin-filled creatures and they're judging the one who has created them. And then stunningly, there is an all-powerful God who's holy, and God allows them to do it. 
he allows these very flawed creatures to be to put his son, who is the son of God, on trial. He allows that, and as only God would do, he's going to take that, and he's going to take their, their arrogance, and he's going to build it into a pathway that will give these very same people the chance to salvation someday. Because this trial is going to lead to Jesus' crucifixion, which is going to blow the door open for them and everyone to have eternal life someday. And so that's where Jesus was 2,000 years ago. Where is Jesus today? He is, he's on trial today as well. In, in this very room, there are a number of you in this room that, that he's on trial in your heart and mind. You're asking the question, what, is this Jesus, was he a real man? This Jesus, did he really do the miracles that are proclaimed? This Jesus, is he really the risen Lord or is he just dead? And I have to say to you, if you're in that position, this is so beautiful because God welcomes you to be there. He invites us in to, to examine his son Jesus. In Psalm 34, 8, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He said, come on in and, and take a look, discover who I am. I want you to do that. And so if you're in this room right now and, and you have this open heart and this open mind, but you just don't know what, to, what conclusion to draw about this Jesus, then know that God the Father is smiling upon you. That you're right where he wants you to be at this point. And then part of my prayer and process is as we walk through the morning that I'm hoping that, that this will give you some uh, some reason to decide, some reason to decide. When I began to talk about this message weeks back with our tech team, one of them had this brilliant idea. They said, what if we, what if we build some scales of justice? And I'm thinking in my mind, that's a great idea. So I'm thinking I'll be teaching here where I usually teach, and there'll be this little table beside me, and they'll build this scale of justice. I thought, what a cool idea. And then Friday I walk in, and I realize they have far outdone themselves, haven't they? And I want to say, we have the best tech team on the planet. I wouldn't trade them for any, any tech team on the planet. So, so here's a visual that I won't forget, and I hope you don't forget either. So let me walk back into the middle of the, of the visual that they've given us, and let me step into this. The, these, are the, these are the scales that might help us weigh out, and we're going to look a little bit about the question of, was Jesus even real? We'll look a little at the question of his miracles, but mostly at the question of, is he risen from the dead or is he simply dead in the grave, or dead and rotted long ago in the grave? And, and I have to be honest, there is a great weight of evidence that would suggest he's just dead in the grave. There's this great weight of evidence of that, and I would suggest that because, because the normal thing is when we die, we're dead, right? Uh, in fact, I don't, know, I don't know a single person in my life that has died that's come back to life again, not a single one. And I have to be honest with you, if one of you grabs me after service and says, hey, I, I died once, and I, I rose from the dead, and I'm back, you're going to have a huge mountain to climb to convince me of that, okay? It's, it's possible, but I think, but it's going to be this huge mountain, because normally what happens is someone dies, they're just dead, they're in the grave, and when I talked to the tech team about this, I said, that should be so heavy, it should, just, it should ground itself out, because any exception to that any exception should be a stunning, stunning, staggering exception to that. And so that's, I think that's where any reasonable person has to begin. But we have to wonder then if Jesus is in the grave. We have to wonder why the stories of Jesus, of his miracles, of his resurrection, why they continue 2,000 years later. 
and why now there are two billion people on the planet that tell the same stories and two billion that actually believe the stories, we have to ask the question, why? And there's some, there's some reasonable expl- ex- explanations that, uh, that we should look at. And one is simply that it, it's just legend. There are legends that are told and retold that go on for centuries. If I mentioned the name Robin Hood, you would be aware of that name. You would know something of the legend of Robin Hood. And we tell that again and again. And if you have kids, you'll probably tell your kids one day. And we further legends because they're interesting and entertaining. And in some cases, maybe they're things to learn a value from them. Maybe they inspire us. And so it, it, it just begs the question about Jesus is everything about Jesus just a legend? Did the man even exist? Did he actually do miracles? Was he risen from the grave? And so let me walk um, in a condensed way through that. The question of whether he even exists as a person uh, can clearly be determined because outside of the Bible, there are 39 additional independent ancient sources to give us over 100 details about this man Jesus' life. Let me say that again. There are, there, are over, there are at least 39 ancient independent sources, in other words, completely independent, that give us facts about Jesus, all together over 100 facts about Jesus. And, and it says to any reasonable historian, it says if there was any man that we know actually lived in a time and a season, there was a man named Jesus. And he basically lived in the area of Galilee, and he traveled down to Jerusalem often, and it was said about him he did miracles. It was said he rose from the dead, and on and on and on, a hundred plus details. There, there was such a man. You don't have to wonder about that if you study it. You can be certain there was a man in that time that actually lived named Jesus, and these characteristics were said about him widely. But it begs the question then, maybe there was a real man, but were his miracles, was his resurrection, is all that just legend? It could very well just be legend. It could very well just simply be legend. There's this famous study by a man named A.N. Sherwin-White of Oxford University. It's a study from quite some time back. It was this exhaustive study about legends. And Sherwin-White came to this decisive conclusion that every single legend he could discover, the beginning to the legend didn't start until at least the third generation after the supposed events occurred. In other words, supposedly there's a generation in which these events occurred, but there's no trace of it ever being told then. And then there's a second generation, there's no trace of it ever being told. And then at the very earliest, the next generation, it just begins to emerge. Like the story begins to develop and emerge, and maybe it's the fourth or fifth generation then. And it's not surprising when I read that once long ago. It's not surprising because... In the first generation, if there's this legend being created that it's just fiction, if you tell that amongst those that will be witnesses, you will have no witnesses. There'll there'll be no corroboration. And so someone begins to weave this story that's just a story, it's just fiction. There'll be others that were there in that town, that community, that time, and they'll say, wait a minute, none of us ever saw that, ever knew that? I'll give you an illustration. Suppose that... um, Suppose I decide I'm going to write a book this year. It's going to be a bestseller book. And, um, and, and in it, unbeknownst to you, when you buy my book, you'll buy it out of curiosity or pity or something. But unbeknownst to you, when, uh, chapter four in the book, I begin to talk about the first 18 years at FCC. And I begin to talk about it was a fairly regular occurrence on Sunday morning for, th- for the sick or wounded or handicapped to be healed. 
And I would talk about Sundays where someone who was paralyzed could walk, and I would talk about the blind seeing. I would talk about some with, with proven extensive cancer suddenly being healed, and, and, and I write about that. But as I get toward the end of chapter 4, I say, but the most stunning thing that ever happened was that Friday. We were having the funeral of this 30-year-old man, this tragic death. He'd been dead for three days. Certified dead through the embalming process. We'd done the viewing. Hundreds had been through the viewing. There were 500 at the funeral in this room. And David Miller, our pastor of community care, is doing the funeral. And everything's going along beautifully. And all of a sudden, I almost choked because I thought I heard him say that God prompted him in saying he wanted to raise this man from the dead. I thought he couldn't have said that. And, and then David Miller proceeds to declare this man to rise from the casket, and he does. Chapter 4, I'm telling, there are 500 witnesses, the guy rose from the dead. So my book comes out, and about 12 of you buy it. And, and how, long, how long do you think the sales are going to keep going up and to the right? About as long as it takes for the first one of you to get to chapter 4. And you begin to read chapter 4, and you call others, and, and you say, I've been here a long time. I've never seen those events. I've never... I've never heard of those events, and pretty soon the whole buzz is, the book is a sham. In five years, you think they'll be telling the story about the resurrected guy? Fifty years, generations? No, no chance. Why? Because, because legends, legends can't start. They can't start amongst the people in which they happen. That's why what was found was they always, they always start later. And so here's the deal with Jesus. The stories of Jesus' miracles began and spread the very day the miracles were done throughout whatever city and town and throughout the entire region. And while some of the miracles were were very private, very few witnesses, a lot of the miracles were healing miracles, and there were family and friends and neighbors or co-workers, and, and they saw it and they knew it, and they would talk openly, widely, pervasively about it. Some of the miracles had thousands of people in attendance and so when the stories began to be told about being, being fed until you were about to pop, and there were 5,000 men plus women and children, there was only a basket of food to start with. When the stories began to be told, there were thousands of witnesses to confirm it. You might hear it, and you would go to somebody else and say, hey, can that even be possible? And, and there was a decent chance the person you asked that question would say, I was there. The stories began to be told the day of each of the miracles and the story of the resurrection began to be told the day of the resurrection itself. A German theologian named Julius Mueller, long ago, 1844, because we've known this about legends for a long, long time. In 1844, Julius Mueller said, well, if, if the resurrection of Jesus, if the whole story of Jesus, his miracles and the resurrection of him, if it's just a legend then it would be the only one we know of in which the legend actually began when the events occurred. And so he said, I want to give this challenge to the entire planet. Just find one more legend that occurred in that fashion. Because every single legend we found didn't launch until at least the third generation. Find just one more for me. And nearly 200 years have passed and no one has found another case of that. And it would suggest while... The legend question is a very important question, and if historical events suggested this were legend, then it w- we would have put a legend weight, we would have put it on this, this evidence side that Jesus is dead, but the evidence lines up and says, this is not the stuff of legend. This is very different than legend, and I would have to say it has to go on the side that suggests he's not dead at all, that he's risen from the dead. But 
even if that's true, wouldn't it be almost expected that this could just be some grand hoax his followers came up with for their gain and for their benefit? Hoaxes are launched all the time. Maybe you've been, you've been hit by them yourself. They're, they're launched all the time. Wouldn't that be typical that, that this just be some grand hoax that his followers launched off on? And, and right off the bat, there's something that adds a question mark to it, although it doesn't kill the whole idea. But right off the bat, the story that unfolds is, is that the very first eyewitnesses of seeing Jesus risen from the dead are women. Now, in our culture and time, that would be no problem. But in their culture and time, women were not expected to be capable of telling the truth. They, they were not accepted as legal witnesses of anything factual. And so if you're the followers of Jesus and you live in that culture and you begin this hoax, why would you ever begin the hoax with this information that the very first one to see him risen are women? It would be like us beginning a hoax like that and saying the very first people to see the risen Jesus were people from the psych ward. Would you begin a hoax that way? Well, maybe if you're trying to outthink the thinkers, maybe, maybe on and on and on. But, but here's more information. The hoax wasn't just being perpetrated by three or four or 11 or 12. There were over 500, if it was a hoax, that bought into the hoax of saying, I saw Jesus alive myself. And as they bought into it, they realized that they were buying into intense persecution as they bought into that hoax, supposed hoax then. Okay, over 500 people were walking around saying, I, I saw him with my own eyes. Many of them said, I touched him with my hands. I ate with him. They were saying that. To give you an idea of, of how many witnesses that would be, if you wanted to hear their testimony and cross-examine them, if you were to gather them all up and begin on Monday morning at 8 a.m. and spend just 15 minutes with each one, hearing their testimony and cross-examining them, if you didn't take any coffee breaks, any bathroom breaks, any meal breaks, any sleep breaks, and went person after person after person through 500, you would go from Monday morning at 5 a.m. until midday Saturday continuously with over 500 people saying, this is when I saw him, this is where I saw him, this is what I felt, this is what I experienced over and over and over again. And all of them, in saying that, buying into intense persecution for themselves. And many of them, many of them actually dying for what would then be a lie if it were a hoax. Now, this is really important. Many of them didn't die because they had faith that Jesus had risen from the dead. They didn't die because, because they said, I believe in my heart of hearts, he rose from the dead. They died because they said, I saw him with my own eyes. I touched him with my hands. I ate bread with him. I ate fish with him. I, I'm an eyewitness. They died for that. And if it were a hoax, then they, they knew it was a lie. If it was a hoax, right? And people don't die for a known lie. They might die for a lie that they think is the truth. They won't die for a known lie. Richard Nixon, all of you would be somewhat familiar with the name. He was former president uh, horrific Watergate scandal, ends up resigning from the presidency and having to walk away from it on the verge of, of impeachment processes beginning. And Richard Nixon had this very small group of confidants around him that worked for him. And, and together, they, they were the only ones that knew exactly what happened. And together, they, they put together an airtight story of what occurred. Chuck Colson, a brilliant attorney, was part of crafting that story and, and Colson would later write and say that, 
that while they knew that uh, the heat would be turned up intensely upon them, that they were the only ones that knew the truth. They were the only ones that could self-convict. And he said, if, if we just simply would hold the line and keep telling the same lie again and again and again, we wouldn't get burned. And so he said it unfolds, and as they expected, the heat gets turned up really high. As the heat gets higher and higher, one of them broke. He couldn't maintain the lie. He wasn't threatened with death. Colson said he was, just, he was threatened with a, a longer prison sentence, and he thought, I'm not going to... I'm not going to hold this lie and serve a longer sentence if I can tell the truth and get a shorter sentence. And so, so the truth comes out, and it's all broken, and another breaks, another breaks. And, and these were men, Colson would write, they had nerves of steel. And Colson would say, I was a, he would say at that time he was a very vindictive man. And you could imagine how much disdain he had to have for those that, that broke. So a short while later, he's pondering the question of Jesus, is he dead or is he risen from the dead? And he ponders the number of followers of Jesus that, that died maintaining the claim that they saw Jesus alive. There were originally 12 apostles. One Judas betrayed Jesus. He hung himself. That left 11. Paul would see the, the risen Jesus, would become an apostle. So in essence, that made 12 again. Of those 12, 11 of those were executed because they would not deny the claim that they saw Jesus alive. Eleven of the twelve, and the twelfth was tortured almost beyond belief. And, and they never recanted the claim. People don't do that for a lie. They, they don't do that for a lie. The hoax question is a good question, but when we examine it and see what the facts are, it doesn't enforce the claim that Jesus is dead in fact, it supports the claim that Jesus is, in fact, risen. But if, if they maintained they saw Jesus, then some would argue that it was merely a hallucination. Hallucinations are real. I, I would ask you to raise your hand if you've had one, but then again, people might start to wonder why you had one. Because some of the reasons aren't good. Some are innocent, but some are not that good. But there's this deal about hallucinations. You can have your own private hallucination... But if there, are, if there are others in the room, they don't get it by being contagious. And if they happen to be hallucinating at the same time, it says a couple of things. Okay? One is it's probably drug-induced by both of you if you have them at the same time. But you don't have the same hallucination. Back in my teens and early 20s, there was a really dangerous drug that you would know about called LSD. That was an, an hallucinogen. And, and people would have LSD parties. Again, very dangerous have parties. And they would all hallucinate, but they never had the same hallucination. And so, so the deal about, about Jesus appearing, supposedly, was he appeared sometimes to one, but sometimes two, sometimes five, sometimes 12, sometimes 500. And so people were, were seeing the very same thing at the very same time. And that's not what happens with hallucinations. And so when we look at that, that doesn't add strength to the death argument. It actually adds strength to the resurrection argument. And so I have to put that on this side as well. And then there's this claim that Jesus made that if someone would place their faith in him or belong to him, in other words, if someone would say, I believe you're the risen Savior, would you forgive me and lead my life? He claimed he would give them a brand new life. They would become a changed person. In fact, Paul would write about this in 
uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. He would say, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. They become this brand new person. And to belong to Christ, again, would mean that you would ask him for forgiveness and you would surrender to Jesus' leadership. Okay, there's this claim from supposed resurrected Jesus. If someone yields to him, they'll have a brand new life. And friends, that evidence is all around us. At the period of my life when I was, I had Jesus on trial with open heart and open mind, and I came to this part of my own process in all, right in front of me on once a week, Dennis Townsend, his wife Andy, would be sitting there, and Bill and Diane Davis would be there, and Grant and Susan Rutledge would be there, and Alvin and Cynthia Bedford would be there, and, and every one of them, there was something so different about them to Marie and me. Um, they, they said they knew Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They, they heard from him. And we knew about Jesus, but, but what they were describing, what they were evidencing was so different. Our first thought was, these people must be nuts. So we hung around them longer, and we found out they were anything but nuts. They were very, very grounded. And we began to learn about the changes in their lives, in some cases the changes that had already happened since beginning to follow Jesus, but we, we saw continual change happen, and there were very compelling changes, and it became this massive, massive weight of evidence for me. Right in front of me were, were the very evidences of what Jesus promised, that he would be the resurrected Savior, and if a person asked forgiveness and asked for his leadership, he would make their life brand new. So within one week of each other, Marie and I both came to that conclusion, and, and we landed on this side of the equation. And the instant I said, would you forgive me and lead my life, there was a shift in my life. I knew something changed. I knew it changed. And now the changes that have occurred have been, have been I'm just a different person. I'm a new person. Friends, the evidence of this claim of Jesus is all around us, and it is overwhelming. And I would boldly, confidently suggest to you that this collective evidence does this to the question. And I think when you examine it with great care, with great care, you can, you can see that what Jesus is asking of us is not... Um, some wild, blind leap of faith, it's a very reasoned step of faith. Faith is still going to be required. There, there will be questions that you and I will never have answered this side of heaven. Faith will still be required. But, but it's, when you really think it out and think through things such as this, it's a very reasonable step of faith. And in fact, what I found was it became much harder to continue to believe that Jesus was dead than it is to believe he's alive and risen. And the stakes of where you land on that, where I land, are extremely high. Because while now, now is the season that you get to have Jesus on trial, there's coming a day for you and for me that you and I will be on trial. And Jesus will be the judge of us. And actually, that makes a whole lot more sense to me. I mean, us getting the opportunity uh, to put Jesus on trial is only stunning grace and love from God. It makes so much more sense. He's going to judge us. The perfect loving God. So in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, it says this. And I saw a great white throne, 
and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is a second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus says, Scripture says, the day will come for all of us that we'll be the one on trial. And Jesus will be the judge of us. And it says here, it says we'll be judged by our deeds. And there's something, on the one hand, there's something extremely convicting about that. There's no exception in this room but what every one of us have sinned and, and sinned more times than we would even be able to account for. Every single one of us. And so when we're judged by our deeds, every single one of us would stand there as, as one who has sinned. We would be a sinner. And, and that would prevent us from relationship with God. And that would prevent us from heaven with God and this lake of fire, this eternity in, in hell that goes without end would be ours. It would be ours. It says we'll be judged by our deeds. But in John 6, 29, it says Jesus told them this is the only work, the only deed God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. It's the only deed. It's the only work God wants from us and asks of us is to believe in the one, Jesus, who he has sent. And to believe again means to say to him, I believe you're resurrected. I believe you're listening to me. Would you forgive my sins because I need them forgiven? And would you lead my life? I surrender to your leadership. And Jesus says, the moment we do that, the moment we do that, every sin is washed away. Every single sin is taken away. And, and we stand there on that day, that day of judgment, we stand there without any sin at all on us. Without any sin at all. In fact, it says throughout Scripture, the word is used, we've become saints simply because of faith in Jesus and what he's done for us. And, and the scales of, of our life, the balance of our life is we get this eternal life with God. The, the love and the grace of God. Do we deserve that? Could we ever be good enough to deserve that? And, and the day will come the day will come. I have to ask this question. If today were the day, what would be Jesus' verdict of your life? If today were the day, would he look at you and say, the truth about you is you're a sinner and, and this is where you land and you're not in the book of life and this is the last day and it's the lake of fire? Would that be where you stand? Or would you stand in the place of saying, I he would look at me and say, only by his grace, I'm a saint. And he would say, your name is in the book of life. And, and I have to say this, and don't miss this. If, if, if you're sitting there thinking, well, the verdict of me would be the sinner verdict. Today, the, the book is open, and he's poised with pen in hand, ready and yearning and willing to write your name in the book of life. And if you say to him, would you forgive my sins and lead my life? I'm surrendering to you. 
He will give you a brand new life now. And when that day comes, whether it's today or a year or 40 years, when that day comes, you're going to be standing there, and he's going to say, you are a saint. You step into my kingdom. Your, your name is in the book of life. My hope, my prayer is some of you who came in on the center side, you're close enough. You can take a reasonable step of faith. You're close enough to say, I, I, I can believe. I can believe he's risen and I'm going to ask him for forgiveness and leadership. That's my hope and prayer. That's my hope and prayer. Some of you, maybe, maybe you came so far away, you need more time, more space. Maybe you do. But if that's the case, then you need to pursue this hard and fast. This is the only thing in the end. This is the only thing that matters in the end. And as soon as it begins, a brand new life begins now. What would be the verdict of your life? Would you bow and pray with me? Father in heaven, I, I pray first for those who came in today and they are aware that they came in with Jesus basically on trial, but they came in with open mind, open heart. And I pray that your spirit has been at work in their heart and mind, convincing them that there's enough reason, there's adequate reason to take a reasonable step of faith. And I pray that now, even now in this moment, in the stillness of their heart, they would authentically say, Jesus, I, I can, I do believe you're risen. And therefore, I ask you to forgive my sins, trusting you will. And I ask you to lead my life. I surrender to you. And Father, I know the moment that happens, you've said a new life has begun. And a new life that will be declared uh, a life of innocence, the life of the saint. And eternity is altered for that person. And for whatever's happening in this room in that regard, Father, I thank you from the core of my being. Father, there's some, there's some that need more time. Uh, stir them, press them, don't let them let go of this. Don't let them become complacent because you'll meet them in the, in the trial of Jesus that they're conducting. You'll meet them and you'll show them enough. You'll show them enough. And then, Father, I pray for those of us that came in with a life that is trusting Jesus. I pray that, that we will feel more stirred and more equipped to help and aid those that we love who haven't gotten to that point yet. And I pray we'll be active, we'll, we'll be in pursuit of this. And now is, is kind of the amen of this message and this prayer, Father. Uh, there's a song we're about to sing. It's a song, a declaration. And those of us that believe it, may we sing it from, the, from our hearts. And, and those that don't are welcome to sing it all the same and see if the words resonate deeply and ring true. So, Father, this is to you. This is to your son. In Jesus' name, amen.